When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo, and you're listening to Novel Conversations. Today I'm going to have a conversation about the novel Persuasion by Jane Austen, and I'll be joined by our Novel Conversations readers, Jennifer Weinbrecht and Pat Fernberg. Jennifer, Pat, hello. Hello, hello Frank. Frank. Before we get started, let me read a quick introduction to our novel today, Persuasion by Jane Austen. Persuasion is the story of Anne Elliot, daughter of Sir Walter Elliot, baronet, and sister to Elizabeth Elliot and Mary Elliot Musgrove. Though titled and a landowner, Sir Walter is vain and a spendthrift, whose extravagances have put the family into debt. To solve his financial difficulties, Sir Walter is persuaded to rent the family manor of Kellynch and move to the less expensive surroundings of Bath. How this dislocation and changed circumstances affects the extended Elliot family, their circle of friends, and eventually persuades Anne to reconsider her youthful misimpressions make up the bulk of our story, Persuasion, by Jane Austen. All right, Jennifer, I know you've read this story many times, but can you remember your first reaction to reading Persuasion? Oh, I loved it the first time I read it. I definitely thought the character of Anne was probably Jane Austen's most mature character. The way you respond to her, has that changed over time for you? Definitely. She's always very noble. And sometimes when you're young, you're not as impressed by people's nature when they want to help everyone and respond to everyone. In the first half of the novel, she's very subdued. Serious. Very sad. And when you're older, you can understand why she feels that way. Pat, how about you? Can you remember how you responded to Persuasion the first time you read it? I loved it for the story. I really appreciated the fact that the men were a lot more developed characters. They had more life. They had more participation. The conversations were a lot more realistic. As I got older, it became apparent that this was a tale of love and loss. And anyone who has ever had a relationship that just didn't quite make it and wanted a second chance, it's really a book about second chances. And I think as you get older, you appreciate the value of a second chance. I know I sure have over time. Well, Pat, you mentioned that her male characters are more developed in this novel. In what way do you think they're more developed? The men talk more to each other. They interact more with each other. They interact more with the women. The conversations are richer in fact, in detail, and they're relaxed. They don't sound as if they're reading their lines. They're from the heart. And Jennifer, compared to some of Jane Austen's other novels, I think all of these characters are older and more mature. Well, certainly the main characters are older and more mature, but, you know, Anne is only 27. That's right. That's right. All right, Jennifer, please start us off the way Jane Austen starts us off. Tell me about Sir Walter Elliot, Baronet. Well, Jane describes him this way. Vanity was the beginning and the end of Sir Walter Elliot's character. Few women could think more of their personal appearance than he did. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of like this description of the Baronet. But this vanity gets in his way, doesn't it? Yes, it certainly does. He feels that he needs to keep up appearances to the point that he spends too much money. As a matter of fact, he used to have a very sensible wife who kept things under control. She died many years ago, and he's been spending ever since then. 
But Pat, it's not only his money that he spends wastefully. He spends a lot of his time wastefully reading about himself in a book called The Baronetage. It's Burke's Peerage, and it details the family histories of all the great families of England. He just can't keep away from that book. When he's depressed, he turns to the book and looks himself up and reads about himself. Well, Pat, while the baronet may enjoy reading about his peerage, this is not something that his eldest daughter, Elizabeth, takes much pleasure in. No, because she's 29 and unmarried. Now, Elizabeth also has two sisters, a middle sister, Anne, and a younger sister, Mary. How do they feel about the baronet and his peerage? Anne is really not as interested in titles as the rest of her family, but the younger sister, Mary, is very interested in position. Mary's no longer living at Kell Lynch Hall because she married a Charles Musgrove and has a couple of children of her own living at Upper Cross Cottage about three or four miles away. Is that right? That's right. But she made sure that she married a young man of property. He will inherit a huge estate. All right, Jennifer, we mentioned that Sir Walter's wife had died. About 15 years ago. There's another woman living on their estate that's sort of taken the place of Anne, Mary, and Elizabeth's mother. That's Lady Russell. Right. Tell me a little bit about Lady Russell. Lady Russell is a widow who was a very good friend of the girl's late mother, and she came to live at the cottage there when her husband died. And she has been like a mother to the girls, but her favorite is Anne. But she's concerned about the fact that Sir Walter has far exceeded his ability to continue to pay his bills. Sir Walter confides in Lady Russell and tells her that he's in deep trouble. And between her and Anne, they come up with somewhat of a solution, don't they? They come up with a budget solution. Sir Walter is appalled. He can't believe that anyone would suggest to him that he should give up some horses and some servants and stop going out so often. Yes, he and Elizabeth can go along with cutting a few charities and gifts to servants and things like that, but give up London and give up all their fun. Maybe they won't buy a present for Anne this year. That's how they'll (laughs) save some money. Yeah, there's not a lot of love for Anne, it seems, in this family. She's not as interested in the things that they're interested in, you know, the title, the connections, and she's very quiet, and they just sort of ignore her. She's also very much like her mother. She gets along with Lady Russell so well because they both read books, they're very intelligent, they talk a lot. Yes, but Sir Walter is in debt, and he does need a solution. And eventually, I think it's his solicitor, Mr. Shepard, that comes up with a plan. And although the baronet doesn't really go for it at first, eventually he does come to accept it. He's going to rent out Kell Lynch Hall? Yes, as long as it's not advertised. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't want anyone to know he has to let it out, but he does have to let it out. And they're going to move to Bath, where they can live in a very gentlemanlike style without spending very much money. It would be less expensive to live in a bigger community like Bath. Well, they're going to take a small apartment there, not small by today's standards, but small for them in their position in life, but it will be very elegant, and they'll be sort of the toast of the town, and they won't have to spend very much money to do that. But all this depends on them successfully renting out Kell Lynch Hall, and Mr. Shepard eventually does come up with a suitable tenant. Admiral Croft and his wife, Sophie, he's semi-retired now, he's wealthy. He's made his fortune. And he's looking for a place to stay. But Sir Walter has reservations about the Navy because being out there on ships with the wind and sailing, they look very old before their time. Most sailors are not attractive men. Not to Sir Walter anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he becomes pleased running it to Admiral Croft because it sounds very fine to say, my tenant, the Admiral. So it's better than just running it to some rich person who doesn't have a title. All right. So when the time comes for them to rent out Kell Lynch Hall to the Crofts, This really causes a dislocation in the family. The baronet leaves with his eldest daughter, Elizabeth, and they head off to Bath. 
but Anne goes to her sister at Upper Cross Cottage. Yes, Mary is indisposed, which is a very polite way of saying she's pregnant. And Elizabeth chooses to take Mr. Shepherd's divorced daughter as her companion instead of inviting Anne to come with her. So Anne is pretty much out of the picture. All right, Jennifer, Pat, we're going to leave Sir Walter Elliot, his daughter Elizabeth, and Mrs. Clay in Bath, as the novel does, and we're going to concentrate right now on Anne and her stay at Upper Cross Cottage with her sister Mary. Yes, Anne arrives at Upper Cross, and she's surprised at how little the concerns of Kellynch Hall are present in people's minds there. They've got their own worries. Right. What are some of those worries? Charles and Anne's sister Mary live in the cottage at Upper Cross, while his parents live in the main manor, and they have a lot of children. They have two older girls who are living at home now, Henrietta and Louisa, who are at marriageable age, but not married. The two houses run back and forth all the time. They have a lot of interaction. The younger family is over at the older family's house, or vice versa, every day. And this doesn't always set well with Mary. Not when she's left behind, when Charles and his father go hunting and she's there all alone and the young Musgrove girls don't come over and visit her. She feels very neglected. Or at least not visit her as often as she thinks they should. She thinks that the day that Anne arrives, they should all come over and pay their respects to her sister. But of course, nobody shows up. So she and Anne go over to visit at the main hall. But Pat, Anne and Mary are not visitorless for long. No, the Crofts come to call on the Musgroves as a matter of courtesy to meet their new neighbors. But this visit causes Anne some great apprehension. This is where we now learn a little bit of backstory about Anne and actually Mrs. Croft's brother, Captain Frederick Wentworth. For a time when Anne was 19, Captain Wentworth was on shore leave. They met and fell in love right away. He wanted to marry her. Apparently, Lady Russell was shocked Her feeling about it was that here was this wonderful, dashing, handsome young man, the first time Anne had fallen in love, and he was in the Navy, which meant that he might have a very short career. He might even have a short life. She was afraid that Anne would be left a young, penniless widow. So she persuaded Anne to break the engagement, which Anne did. And now, almost eight years later, Anne is faced with the prospect of meeting this captain again when he comes to visit his sister, Mrs. Croft. That's right. He took the news of the breakup very hard. So she is aware that he's probably resentful, and she's a little afraid of her own feelings about meeting him. Immediately, though, when the Crofts visit, Anne is given a shock. Yes, Mrs. Croft says, I understand you knew my brother who used to live in this area. Did you know he's married? And of course, Anne thinks Captain Wentworth is married. And then the next sentence, Mrs. Croft explains that this is her brother, the curate, Frederick's older brother. That's Edward Wentworth. Right. So Anne sits back very relieved. (laughs) So now we know as readers that there is still something in Anne that cares a lot for the captain. We certainly do. She's had a terrible disappointment, and you do get the feeling that she's been thinking about this disappointment and regretting it. And she has never stopped following his career. She knows that he's risen to fame and prominence. And fortune. And fortune. But now she doesn't have to only face the prospect of seeing him. He does come to town, and she does see him. Yes, and he and Charles become fast friends, so she can't avoid him. Charles is her brother-in-law. Yes. And she's staying with them at their house. So he comes over to go hunting, to visit. And then Charles Musgrove has these two young sisters who are, well, at least one of them is looking for a husband. Don't tell me he's going to get involved with one of Mary's sisters-in-law. One of them. Both. (laughs) Both? 
Well, they're both just so charmed by this man. He's handsome. He's dashing. He's a hero. He's in uniform. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So they're just following him around. Now, Henrietta has long had an expectation of marrying their cousin, Charles Hayter. I love that name, by the way, Charles Charles Hayter. Hayter. (laughs) H-A-Y-T-E-R. But those interests seem to be set aside by Captain Wentworth. Captain Wentworth has everyone's heart flutter, and he's provoking some jealousy. But what about him and Anne? He's deliberately ignoring Anne. In fact, Mary told her, Frederick was not very complimentary about you. He said you were so altered, he would not have known you. And of course, whenever he runs into Anne, he's very polite. But they never get past those first few polite words. There's no conversation there. Polite and cold. Yes. But to me, as a man, that tells me he's still harboring anger and resentment. And you don't have those emotions unless you still have other feelings for this woman. Well, he's showing a lot of resentment, but there are a few times as time passes where he observes Anne being so quiet and reserved, he starts to treat her differently. Right. There's certain nonverbal moments that, to me, show he still has feelings for her. I'm reminded of an incident where Anne is wrestling with one of her nephews, and the nephew sort of grabs her around the neck and is hanging on her, and she's trying to get him off. And Captain Wentworth just quietly walks over, lifts the kid off of her, and puts him aside and says, this is not how you behave. And this action, although completely silent, raises some emotions in Anne. She's grateful. She is embarrassed. She doesn't quite know what to think. I mean, why is he intervening to do this for her? But she's hopeful that there's still something there. But then just as quickly and quietly, he turns his back to her and stares out the window again, and that moment gets lost. Right. There's no way to follow that up with anything. And right after this incident, he leaves. Only for 24 hours. Do we know where he went? He has received a letter from his former first mate, Captain Harville. They saw action together in the West Indies. In fact, Harville had been wounded during this action. Yes, he had. And he sends a letter saying, my wife and I have settled here in Lyme Regis, which is a seaside town, and suggests that Captain Wentworth would like to come visit him. And with the captain going through all these emotions, not really sure how he feels about Anne, not really sure how Anne feels about him, he's more than happy to take off and put some distance between himself and Anne. Although when he returns, he talks about it and he's so enthusiastic about it that the rest of the party decides they'd love to go. Especially Louisa. Louisa's been flirting with him the most. So Louisa is determined that they should all go. So off to Lyme Regis they go. Going to Lyme together are all our young adults, including Captain Wentworth, Anne Elliot, her sister Mary Musgrove, and husband Charles Musgrove, and Charles's two sisters, Henrietta and Louisa. Now, Pat, once this party gets to Captain Harville's home, they meet another character, Captain Bennick. James Bennick was a fellow officer of Captain Harville and Captain Wentworth. In addition, he was engaged at one time to Captain Harville's sister, Phoebe. They decided to wait until Captain Bennick came back with some prize money. Pat, how would a ship's captain or a sailor come by prize money? When you capture a ship, you sell the cargo, and that money from the sale is divided among the officers by rank. Right, they all get a share. So you can become fabulously wealthy. As did Admiral Croft. And as Captain Wentworth. So Captain Bennick did make his fortune and was returning home to marry Phoebe when he discovered that she had died. You know, this story is almost the opposite of what Lady Russell had feared for Anne should she get involved with Captain Wentworth. She was afraid Captain Wentworth would go off, perhaps get killed, and Anne would be left alone. Here we have the man who's been left alone. 
Yes, and being left alone has not been good for Captain Bennick. He is severely depressed. And Anne takes an interest in helping him feel better. She discusses poetry with him and recommends that perhaps poetry is unhealthy for him and recommends some books that she thinks would help him get over his loss, which is ironic. But Jennifer, would it be fair to say she's not only taking an interest in his problems, she does seem to take an interest in him. He does share a lot of the same likes as she does. They do. They really enjoy literature, but also they share this common sorrow. She also has suffered this loss that has been affecting her for eight and a half years. And so they have very much in common, although she can't tell him that, but she kind of feels like this is ironic. Well, and none of that is lost on Captain Wentworth. He's also a little concerned about the fact that there's this growing intimacy between Captain Bennick and Anne Elliot. And of course, as a typical male, this just leads Captain Wentworth to flirt more with Louisa and Henrietta. Well, another thing happens. They're out walking on the cob, which is an ancient construction that Lyme is famous for. It's kind of like a dike that extends out into the sea. It's being washed by waves all the time. Sort of a retaining wall or something? Yes, creates a bay there. And there's steps on it. And as they come up the steps, they pass a young gentleman who stops and admires Anne. It's very obvious to Captain Wentworth, and he turns back and catches her eye as if to say, oh, that man's interested in you. So yeah, Captain Wentworth may be starting to get a little jealous here. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, Pat, who is this mysterious other man? The mysterious other man we find out as he's leaving is her cousin, William Walter Elliott the heir presumptive to the family fortune, including Kellich Hall. He's the only male relative of the Elliots. Therefore, he's the presumptive heir to not only Kell Lynch estates, but to the title of baronet. Yes, that's right. But we also know there's been a falling out between Sir Walter and William Elliot. What was the cause of that? We're not sure, but we know that Sir Walter had originally intended that Elizabeth, the oldest sister, would marry him, and things didn't work out. That was Sir Walter's attempt to keep the estates and the title within his family. Yes. Well, how does Anne react now after all this time to run into her male cousin? Anne knows about the hard feelings between her father and Mr. Elliot. And even though she doesn't understand all that went on between them, she feels it's probably better that they not renew the acquaintance. But she is intrigued. And all of these men intrigued and attracted to Anne is causing Captain Wentworth to flirt even more with Louisa and Henrietta. And that leads to a tragedy, doesn't it? It does. The group from Upper Cross and Captain Bennick and Captain Harville are taking the last walk before the Upper Cross people go back home. Louisa is standing on the steps of the cob by the sea. The steps are constantly being washed with water. It's cold. It's November. And Louisa decides that she would like to be jumped down off the steps by Captain Wentworth. And he does it once and then says, okay, let's move on. And Louisa insists on being jumped down again. Before he can catch her, she slips, hits her head, and is left unconscious on the pavement. And Anne steps forward and takes control because the men are too stunned to know what to do. 
That's right. Essentially, Anne starts barking out orders. Captain Bennick, you go get a surgeon. Captain Wentworth, you pick her up and let's carry her to Captain Harville's house. We've got three naval captains here and they all seem to panic and freeze. This is a point. You see, these men are good out on the sea. There's this sort of theme throughout the novel about men's world and women's world. And Anne is the expert in the women's world in this taking care of sort of domestic accidents. This is her realm and she steps forward. And of course, the other two women are really helpless. They think Louise is dead. Mary is hysterical. Henrietta faints herself and hits the ground. Well, Pat, what happened to Louisa? Louisa had a concussion, but she has to remain quiet under the care of the Harvilles. She can't be moved. So someone has to go and tell Louisa's parents that this has happened, and somebody has to make sure that everybody else is dispatched either at home or is involved in taking care of Louisa. But Jennifer, who returns to Upper Cross? Well, the men have been talking and decided that Charles won't leave his sister. Mary refuses to go home, even though Captain Wentworth is stating that Anne should stay and take care of Louisa. No one so capable as Anne. But Henrietta does need to go home, and someone needs to go home and tell the parents. So Captain Wentworth ends up driving Anne and Henrietta back to Upper Cross. He brings the women in, tells the parents, and then he drives back immediately. Back immediately to Lyme. To Lyme. But Pat, Louisa's recuperation is going to take months. She's going to be in Lyme for a very long time. And with the Musgroves going to Lyme to take care of their daughter, what does Anne do? She goes to visit Lady Russell in Kellich and then joins her family in Bath. That's right. Her father, the baronet, and her sister Elizabeth have now been there for the last three months. How are they getting along in Bath? They love it. They're the center of attention. There are a lot of their other friends staying in Bath. And Mr. Elliot has been haunting the place. He's been making frequent visits, so they feel very gratified. And they've discovered that relatives of theirs, Lady Dalrymple and her daughter, Miss Carteret, are also in town. Well, Jennifer, Pat said Mr. Elliot has been visiting Sir Walter and Elizabeth at their home in Bath. What's he up to now? I thought they were estranged. And Anne is suspicious about this. Now, Lady Russell approves, and she notices that Mr. Elliot seems to be interested in Anne. But, of course, Elizabeth assumes that he's interested in her. But, Jennifer, I guess the important question is, is Anne interested in Mr. Elliot? Anne enjoys his company. He's a gentleman-like person, and he's more interesting to talk to than her own family. But she always has a cold feeling about him. She can't really explain it. And certainly there's no love. She's not in love with him, no. Is he in love with her? Well, Mrs. Smith thinks that Mr. Elliot is in love with her. But who's Mrs. Smith? Mrs. Smith is a former schoolmate of Anne's who married very well, but her husband made some unfortunate business decisions, did not plan well, was too generous, and when he died, she was left without a penny. And she has since become ill, which is why she's in Bath now. And she has a nurse who assists her, and her nurse also nurses other people and is in on the gossip of Bath. And she has informed Mrs. Smith that Mr. Elliot is very interested in Anne Elliot. And that's what Mrs. Smith tells Anne. Yes. But Jennifer, when Anne finds out about Mr. Elliot's intentions, does that change how she feels about Captain Wentworth? Oh, no. But she's given him up because she believes everything points to him marrying Louisa. And that's what she believes until Admiral and Mrs. Croft come to town. Anne bumps into Admiral Croft on the street, and as they're walking along, he tells her that he got a letter from Frederick, who has been staying in the country while Louisa has been recovering. And Louisa is not going to marry Frederick Wentworth. She's going to marry Captain Bennick. Wait a minute. Captain Bennick? The depressed little sailor? 
Yes. You know, you can just see this Louisa is sort of first in a coma and then she's gradually coming to and she's ill and he's there all the time. You can see why this became an attraction. But we've been led to believe that Louisa is really the opposite of what Captain Bennick is. She doesn't love poetry. She's not a reader or a thinker. She's learning. Ah. And Frederick, to everyone's surprise, doesn't seem to be at all affected by it. He seems perfectly good with that. And that's not the only news that Admiral Croft gives Anne. No, he tells her that Frederick is now coming to Bath, and in fact may be there already. And Captain Wentworth knows Anne's in Bath. Yes, he does. Uh Mm -hmm. Captain Wentworth, as far as Anne's concerned, is a free man again, and he comes to Bath. But even though Captain Wentworth is a free man, Anne still doesn't know how he really feels about her. And Jennifer, in fact, when Captain Wentworth first gets to town, he sees Anne with this very handsome man who had made eyes at her in Lyme. And he'll soon find out that that handsome man is Mr. Elliot. And Mr. Elliot, of course, would be a very eligible person for Anne to marry. And we already know from Mrs. Smith that their growing attachment is the gossip of Bath. Well, that's right. And even the next time Captain Wentworth runs into Anne, she's with Mr. Elliot again at a concert. Yes. When Captain Wentworth arrives, he sees Anne, and they're in the middle of a very interesting conversation that's interrupted when everyone proceeds into the concert, where she is seated with Mr. Elliot, and he is paying a lot of attention to her, and Captain Wentworth is there watching this. And that's all Captain Wentworth has to see. He decides, I'm just going to leave. But Anne catches him at intermission before he can leave the hall, and he bids her a good night, and he's cold. And she says, is not this worth staying for? To which he replies, there is nothing worth staying for. And actually, this cues Anne a little bit, doesn't it? Well, yes, the conversation they were having right before the concert was very warm and friendly. And now all of a sudden, there's this cold conversation and he's walking out the door. There's nothing worth staying for. She begins to suspect that he's jealous of Mr. Elliot. And that's good for her. It's good for her, but she doesn't know how she can get that across to him. But Jennifer, once Captain Wentworth leaves, things get even more complicated for Anne. Well, Mr. Elliot's been flirting with her a lot, and tonight he says to her, the name of Anne Elliot has long had an interesting sound to me. Very long has it possessed a charm over my fancy, and if I dared, I would breathe my wishes that the name might never change. This is a heavy hint that he wants to marry her. Yeah, he's almost sounding her out or giving her a warning, be prepared, I'm going to ask you to marry me. And it's with this dilemma on her mind that the next morning she goes and visits her friend Mrs. Smith. And Mrs. Smith mentions that this may be one of the last few visits she has with Anne because she knows that Anne will be marrying Mr. Elliot. Anne is horrified. She says, but I don't want to marry him. She makes it very clear that she has no desire to marry Mr. Elliot, that she finds him cold and there's something about him that bothers her and she can't put a name to it. And it's that comment from Anne that gives Mrs. Smith an opening to tell her the true story, the backstory of Mr. Elliot. Yes, Mrs. Smith and her husband were very close friends with Mr. Elliot for many years, and they know all about him. And she tells Anne that he doesn't respect her father. This newfound allegiance to the family is really because even though he has money, he doesn't have a title. And now that his first wife has died, he's very interested in making sure he keeps the title. And he has heard about Mrs. Clay and suspicions that Mrs. Clay might be able to entrap Sir Walter in a marriage. And if she does, if she bears him a son, that will ruin Mr. Elliot's chances of inheriting the baronetcy. So it's really not about the money anymore for Mr. Elliot. He made that money from his first wife. He really now wants to secure that title. 
Not only that, but Mrs. Smith also sheds another light on his character by telling the story of her husband's relationship with Mr. Elliot. They were law school classmates. Mr. Elliot had a lot more money than the Smiths and encouraged them to spend more than they could afford. And Mrs. Smith right now could have enough money to live on. All he has to do is write a few letters for her. This would free up an estate and some money that she would have coming in, and he won't do it. He's been very cruel to her. And this finally confirms all these instincts that Anna's had about Mr. Elliot. He is completely wrapped up in money and power. Okay, but this explains Mr. Elliot to Anne. It still doesn't solve Anne's problem of making Captain Wentworth understand she's in love with him and not Mr. Elliot. How's she going to resolve that? Actually, she doesn't. Captain Wentworth resolves it. And how does that happen? The Musgroves and her sister Mary and her husband Charles have come to Bath. They're going to buy wedding clothes for Henrietta, who's going to finally marry her cousin, and for Louisa, who's going to marry Captain Bannock. But Louisa's too ill to come. So everyone's there but Louisa. And they're at the Musgroves' apartment. Mrs. Croft has come. Captain Wentworth is sitting at a table writing a letter, and Anne and Captain Harville are having a conversation a few feet away. This is probably the most famous conversation in the book. They talk about whether or not men or women grieve longer when they've lost someone they love. And Anne makes some comments that Captain Wentworth overhears. So he stops writing the letter that he was writing, and he begins to write a letter to Anne. Well, let me stop you there. What was Anne's comment? Anne's comment is, all the privilege I claim for my own sex, it is not a very enviable one. You need not covet it is that of loving longest when existence or when hope is gone. Now, Captain Wentworth is hearing this conversation, and he writes this letter. He leaves the room and actually steps back in. He pretends he forgot his gloves. He scoots the letter out on the table and taps it so that she'll see it. And then he quickly turns and leaves. And he leaves. (laughs) And so she comes over and opens this letter, and this has to be the most romantic letter in literature. Every man should be so romantic. I can listen no longer in silence. I must speak to you by such means as are within my reach. You pierce my soul. I am half agony, half hope. Tell me that I am not too late, that such precious feelings are gone forever. I offer myself to you again with heart even more your own than when you almost broke it eight and a half years ago. Dare not say that man forgets sooner than woman, that his love has an earlier death. I have loved none but you. Unjust I may have been. Weak and resentful I have been but never inconstant. You alone have brought me to Bath. For you alone I think and plan. I can hardly write. I am every instant hearing something which overpowers me. You sink your voice, but I can distinguish the tones of that voice when they would be lost on others. Don't forget the postscript. Ah, yes, the postscript. I must go, uncertain of my fate, but I shall return hither or follow your party as soon as possible. A word, a look, will be enough to decide whether I enter your father's house this evening or never. Well, he's given her an ultimatum there, hasn't he? (laughs) She's got to have the right look on her face when they see each other next time. Anne can't get out of the room fast enough to pursue him. Yeah. And she is so overcome by the letter that everyone in the room assumes she's ill. And so they ask Charles to walk her back home. On the street, they meet Captain Wentworth. And Charles, who has an appointment with a gunsmith, is happy to hand Anne off to Captain Wentworth. And Anne is happy to be handed off. And Captain Wentworth is happy to be handed off, too. Finally. The dam bursts. They reveal their feelings. And Jennifer, Pat, to no one's surprise, Captain Wentworth and Anne are going to marry. Yes, they are. We're going to have three weddings. That's right. Louisa and Captain Bennick, Henrietta and Charles Hayter, and Captain Wentworth and, and Anne. But Mr. Elliot doesn't get married. Yeah, what happens to Mr. Elliot? 
Actually, to keep Mrs. Clay from marrying Sir Welter and bearing an heir, he sets her up as his mistress in town. Ah, good plan, (laughs) Mr. Elliot. So eventually he still will get that title. Yes, he will. And that's essentially how our novel Persuasion ends. Happily ever after. Three times. (laughs) All right, now, Jennifer Pat. Of course, in a novel of this size with this many characters and these many scenes, we can't get to all the moments. So now's your opportunity. If you have a quote that you wanted to read or a character you wanted to introduce us to, now's your chance. I have a quote that I want to read here, and it's from Sir Walter Elliott when he's telling his solicitor, Mr. Shepard, why he really would rather not rent his manor to a Navy man. He has two objections. First, as being the means of bringing persons of obscure birth into undue distinction and raising men to honors which their fathers and grandfathers never dreamt of, And secondly, as it cuts up a man's youth and vigor most horribly, (laughs) a sailor grows older sooner than any other man. I have observed it all my life. He doesn't like to be around men who are not as attractive as he is. Or even women. He talks about standing on a street corner in Bath and counting the number of ugly women that go by. 87 women in a row who were (laughs) ugly. So when I said at the very beginning that he was vain, that's right. Yes. And before we end our conversation, Pat, I know you have one more quote that really shows this vanity of Sir Walter. It's after the Crofts have taken possession of Kellich Hall. Admiral Croft is telling Anne about some of the few improvements they've made to the house. (laughs) I know it's coming. He says, I've done very little besides sending away some of the large looking glasses from my dressing room, which was your father's. A very good man and very much the gentleman, I'm sure. But I should think, Miss Elliot, I should think he must be a rather dressy man for this time of life. Such a number of looking glasses. Oh, Lord, there was no getting away from oneself. (laughs) That was Sir Walter Elliot, wasn't it? I'll tell you, it's amazing to think how a man like that could have a daughter like Anne. Yes, it is. Anne is almost perfect. Almost. Almost. And it's on that almost perfect that we'll end our conversation today about the novel Persuasion by Jane Austen. Jennifer, Pat, I want to thank you both for coming in and having this conversation with me today. Thank you, Frank. It's our pleasure. Actually, it's my pleasure. Joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation about the novel Persuasion by Jane Austen is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Hello, Ted. Hi, Frank. Ted, before we get into a discussion about the novel itself, I noticed two things in the way this novel was presented to us as readers that were unusual for Jane Austen novels. It came with a forward, and it came with an alternate ending. Ted, tell me first about that forward by her brother Henry, I think. Yes. Henry was grieving. Grieving after Jane's death. And he decided he was going to let the world know about his beloved sister, her fabulous work, the fact that she was a saint above all else, never had a human feeling. Even in her characters, he later wrote, her power of inventing characters seems to have been intuitive and almost unlimited. She drew from nature, but whatever may have been surmised to the contrary, never from individuals. And yet in Jane's writing, especially to her sister, they're delighting in the characters they know and they make their appearances in all her novels. But Ted, regardless of whether she created these characters out of whole cloth or based them on people that she already knew, clearly she worked on perfecting their characterizations. Well, also, she would have screamed if she had known that was going to be published. Yeah, but that ending showed her work, showed her progressing, changing and embarrassing her. In 1816, she's extremely sick. She finishes the book. Now she can't sleep. She realizes it's a lousy ending. It's not what she's after. She tosses and turns, and she writes about this to her nieces. She writes about this to her sister. And finally, she figures out what she wants to do, writes the ending that she wanted to have. Well, Ted, let's be clear for our listeners. 
the earlier version of the ending didn't change the story and how it ended. Anne Elliot and Captain Wentworth still get married. But it's not as well written, and we don't get the letter from Captain Wentworth to Anne, and there's a couple other moments that are missing. It was a draft. So, Ted, why is this included in the book? I'm assuming it's because some publisher thought it would be a nice historical interest to the reader. But for me as a writer, and from what Jane's nephew wrote after her death, I suspect for Jane as well, the joy is in telling a finished polished story as the writer defines it, not in having someone see work in progress, which is never as good. But Ted, let me tell you, as a reader, I'm glad it was there. I saw it as just a large annotation along with the other annotations in my version. I can understand that, but I would rather see it separately so you could read the book, enjoy the book, and then if you're interested in how she came to it, see that and some of her notes from her letters where she discusses her work in progress. I got you. And Ted, there's another oddity about this novel that I wanted to ask you about. Jane Austen did not title this work Persuasion. No, she never gave it a title. Well, Ted, don't tell me this was another publisher's decision. No, this was her brother Henry. He was the one who named it after her death. And it was not a Jane Austen title at that point. Well, why is that? She was actually working on two novels at the same time, one of which was going much more smoothly, the other of which, Miss Catherine, was set aside, never published, never finished. And in writing to her niece about this, she said, I do not know that she, meaning the novel Miss Catherine, will ever come out, but I have a something ready for publication, which may perhaps appear about 12 months hence, which she was correct on. But she died before it was published. She died before it was titled. And that became Persuasion by Henry's instigation. And Persuasion was the last Jane Austen novel to be published. Yes. And Ted, I'll tell you, even if Jane Austen might not have liked it, certainly Persuasion is a better title than something. Yes, but it would have been nice if that had been Jane's. Again, Ted, your writer's sensibilities are showing. My sense and sensibility. <laughs> Very good. And with it showing, I think this is where we'll end our end notes on today's novel, Persuasion by Jane Austen. I want to thank you for coming in and bringing me this great information. You're welcome. I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Jennifer Weinbrecht and Pat Fernberg. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next week, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Novel Conversations is a production of the Front Porch People. Listen to more great conversations at thefrontporchpeople.com. Thank you for listening. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors 
give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.